The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From bosses that hold you back to promotions that you don't even want, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Matt, can I tell you a story about a guy named Mo? Let's hear it. So Mo is an ideal employee. He's an engineer and he gets this email and it basically says, look, there's a product release. The CEO and the board, their hair is on fire about it. And they got to release it in the next two weeks, which means he, Mo and his team, even though they're working remotely, they're going to be working day in and day out, late nights, coffee and IVs, that kind of a thing. They go around the clock. They work their tails off. It's a success. He doesn't hear anything from anybody in the company for a couple of days. One day after lunch, he takes a quick walk, and on the front door, there's a package from his company. And he thinks to himself, oh, it's got to be something for all the work I did. He's excited. He opens up the package, and what it is, is a tub of firm-branded pretzel rods. Just wanted to introduce our guest co-host today, recurring Azhar Uzman, writer on Rami, Hulu, and Mo Netflix, as well as a stand-up comedian. We also have the guest host here, Leah, as well, who's joined us for, this is the third show you're coming on, Leah. Appreciate it. Operates a a viral uh, account, I think on both Instagram and TikTok. Is that right? Honestly, I should just let Azhar introduce me because he does a better job (laughs) of it than I do. Leah can be seen on TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> where she has millions and millions of views and okay. she has 129,000 followers. So she's totally cozied up with the Chinese. <laughs> Very unique corporate humor, I should say too. So I think it's a perfect fit for, for what Fishbowl and this pod is all about. Matt, this came out of a conversation that we had and there's three posts. And the first one is just a post, a harmless post from someone on Fishbowl that said, received some firm branded pretzel nuggets today. This job can be grueling, but the perks make it all worthwhile. And there's this picture. And I have to say, looking at the picture, I don't know where the branded aspect of this is, Matt, like, because it it's like Kirtland. It's not clear. It, like, I think it was just a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they were firm branded at all. <laughs> we probably missed it. Yeah, for sure. We were laughing about that just because a show or two ago, we were just talking about quiet quitters and operators trying to find the balance of incentivizing people to come back to the office. And we were talking about office perks. And then it got into a conversation about awards and really what employees across the board, what kind of recognition do they value? But then there's this post that came in and then it had a statement. And it says, as someone who struggled financially at times growing up and didn't go to a prestigious school, but worked hard in my early career to land at Deloitte, things like the applause awards mean a lot to me. I suffer from imposter syndrome at times, so being recognized is amazing, and it helps my mental health. Listen, we laugh a lot on this show. This seems a very earnest, like, hey, like I know people laugh at awards, but this meant a lot to me. And then this last post here that kind of rounds it out and sets us up for the conversation is someone who just made a confession. I don't care about my client. They make billions every year, mostly at the expense of working people. I'm faking all my enthusiasm. I don't care about this project. I just care about getting by. And if the client fails, that's fine. 
we're looking at a continuum here of employee experience and what they find valuable, whether it's how they're treated, whether it's their interaction with clients, or it's the perks that they get. Matt, maybe I can start with you. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of provide a little more detail, like flesh this out with a little meat, I think most professionals on Fishbowl probably are familiar with these like culture scores, you know, tools like Lint and and other firms, sometimes startups that have made a name for understanding the morale via a numerical number of essentially how many people grade the culture at their company highly and are motivated and are content or happy and how many aren't. I think what's lost in those scores is kind of like a zero sum is that, hey, well, if it's you know above the average, then the sense is like, well, great, there's more people who are motivated or encouraged than unmotivated or discouraged. And it kind of ends there and the C-suite accrues all the, the benefit. But I think what's lost in that is Ultimately, those two ends of the spectrum or continuum that you mentioned, Aaron, they have to work with one another, right? Like the individual who just said, I don't care about my client. I don't care if they fail. And then on the flip side, you have that individual who's like hyped up on the applause award and, you know, God bless her, right? It definitely makes the employer jobs easier when you are grateful for that type of stuff. But how does that one end of the spectrum in the same org work with the other end? So I don't care if your score is an 80 or a 90, whatever it is, if you have even just a, a few of these individuals who don't give a shit, and I'm not pointing blame at them, I'm just saying if you have them, the real challenge is, is like, how's work getting done? Because you only need a handful, you only need a bevy to really just stagnate as a company. If you look at kind of traditional office work theory, and there's a set of nodes or individuals who are responsible for over-communicating to teams. And when those nodes go silent, work does not get done. And so if you have a bevy of these individuals, like the question I can't is like, you know, how do you get them to work with the other? And it's just, it's a really difficult challenge. I mean, I'm definitely the employee that likes free stuff. <laughs> so I'm the employee that never gets the awards because I have too much of a sassy attitude. But yeah, I don't know. It's not that uncommon to hear people say they don't care about their client in advertising. I find it easier to work when I do care. So like if I'm selling bubble gum or ARP dental insurance, I'm gonna, I'm all in. I'm all in with the excitement. I'm an ARP member. But yeah, I don't know. That's the challenge as a as a leader, right? To make a work environment where you have different programs in place that incentivize different people. Leah, does the flair mean anything to you? Yeah, I love it. And I'm like, if I, why? I need a free notebook or a free sweatshirt. Otherwise, I could just go work at Beta. They'll give me tons of free stuff. <laughs> That's, I don't know. I don't know. I love it. I mean, I've literally thrifted this workday mug that I'm using. And I don't, I've never worked at workday. I don't even like working in workday. I just love swag. I don't know what to say. But Leah, like, why is it important to you? In, in all seriousness, like, is it just something because it's like fun or does it like, is it a dopamine hit? Like, what's the thing that makes it exciting? I don't know. Is it a job where we did like cocktails and food every Thursday evening? They probably spent 200 bucks a week, which is what? I don't know, a few thousand dollars a year. They cut that because we're cutting costs. And to me, it's like an FU to the employee when they cut things like that. It's like they're spending five bucks a person to send you a sweatshirt or a notebook or whatever it is. It's just a little like, hey, we care about you. Here's a little reminder. The person who said that I don't care about anything post, there was a comment here who said, kind of mimicking that post, it said, confession, some clients suck. This feeling is normal, but if you aren't motivated by something at work, you should find new work. Motivation can, but rarely does, come from the client need. More often, it comes from respecting the men and women in the trenches with you 
or a singular pursuit for personal excellence, if clients, coworkers, or personal excellence isn't a motivation to care about delivering, then you owe it to yourself to find a job you like more. Pretty great advice there on, on Fishbowl. I didn't know if Tony Robbins jumped in there real quick. I got to hire that manager. And that was guy, amazing. Those are great response. You had the apathetic post, right? That Matt, you were talking about the challenges of trying to get these types of personalities to work cohesively. But then Ashar, the original post, listen, I complimented it because I thought it was pretty earnest. Someone said, you know, hey, man, these applause awards mean a lot to me. What is your take about applause awards and awards like that in general? And Matt Simboli has labeled me a cynic. <laughs> I don't I don't appreciate being called a cynic because <laughs> cynicism is a very dark and demonic quality, actually, to doubt the the motives of others. I will just say that people are different. And this person is very excited to receive an applause award at work. Other people might find that to be silly. And I happen to be one of those people who thinks it's kind of silly. But I also think that it's it's a philosophical, we, we keep returning to this philosophical question about the role of work in your life. Even this comment you just read, Aaron, you said that this, you found it to be very sagacious wisdom. What do the guys say? Like, you owe it to yourself to find work that is meaningful. Like, to me, that's all horseshit. I don't believe any of that. A job is something you do to get money. If I could just clean dog shit and make a million dollars a year, I'd be a dog shit cleaner. It's just a matter of you're, you're exchanging some time of your life to get this fake thing we call money that we've all agreed is this hustle that we all have to participate in. Now, that amount of time you have to trade to get this fake money, everybody's got to make their own trade. How do you reconcile that, Azhar, with your choice of career? So presumably, I think the audience now is familiar with the fact that you have an entrepreneurial background, you've raised money, you've built companies, you were a corporate lawyer, you ditched it all to become a stand-up comedian. Certainly, you did not do that for the prospect purely of money. Certainly, you did that because you love an element of the job. No, I did it because I'm lazy and I figured out I can make money telling jokes. <laughs> if anything, comedians expose how absurd the whole system is. Like We make fun of all this nonsense. And people pay me money to do it. It's ridiculous. I'm very grateful that I found a path in life where I can just speak my mind, make fun of all the ridiculous things that are part of life now. To me, that that's actually what stand-up comedy at its best actually represents is the ability to mock the inherent absurdity of it all. Like one of my favorite quotes is, is Dave Barry. David Barry is a humorist. And he said, a sense of humor is a measurement of the extent to which we realize that we are trapped in a world almost totally devoid of reason. Laughter is how we express our anxiety at this knowledge. <laughs> which is, which is just, just a phenomenal quote summing up how ridiculous the whole thing is. So yeah, so to me, when I hear these kind of like grandstanding kind of statements about like, you know, make sure you find a job that gives meaning to your life, like, Nah, dude. And no, ain't nobody deriving meaning out of their life by being a consultant at McKinsey and making spreadsheets and making PowerPoint <laughs> presentations. Like I got to interlude here on, the, on behalf of the user bit. So I do hear you. I mean, after those comments, I do think a cynic is pretty tame, the term. I'm sorry. A lot of these are just lies we tell ourselves to get through life. So we just put ourselves through misery for 40 to 100 hours a week and just pretend that, you know, this is what we're giving my life meaning. No, nah, bro, your life is not getting meaning from your work. Do that shit to get the check and then build a real life outside of your office. 
Which a lot of people do. They get that value out. I mean, I have a good friend who works in risk, is not super passionate about it. And then is like a football referee nights and weekends and fucking yeah, loves it. But you can't pay the bills. So he's yeah, working his way up life. to the NFL. And that's like his fun thing. That's but what I'm talking about. Not paying the bills. Right. Yeah. Mad respect for your friend referee. Yes. <laughs> Just to counter here a bit, Azhar. So like at what point... Most side hustles start off as a side hustle, but they become businesses, right? They're corporations, presumably. Maybe it's an LLC that grows. And are you insinuating or implying that like a side hustle that starts off as a for-profit LLC where the person's gaining money and they're looking to build it, it's impossible to be idealistic with that? Like it's impossible to start a company that does have a mission, the founder or the, you know, the operators are truly loyal to, and they get other people on board with that mission? No, no. I'm making a totally different point. Okay. I'm making a philosophical point that there are different types of people. Some people work to live and some people live to work. And the people who live to work, their whole meaning and their whole life is wrapped up in their job and their profession and their career. That's what gives a life purpose because they feel like they're here on, on earth. The purpose of their life is to work and to achieve accolades at work and become a partner and make a lot of money and Good for you. That's a path in life. Congratulations, you found your purpose. Personally, I'm, I'm a, of a different ilk. I don't live to work. I work to live. I put in the amount of time I have to work to get the paper I need to sustain my life, and then I spend the rest of my life doing the shit I really want to do with my life, which has nothing to do with work. I know for me, the meaning in what I do for expression artistically has been a beacon for me in terms of how I've chosen to live my life and the way that I work. Meaning, so to keep it simple, like I know we used comedy as an experience and you shared what that was. For me, when I was six, I'm like, I just want to be able to tell stories to people because I loved doing it. I literally, it's not because I got paid. I loved, loved the feeling of doing it uh, from a psychological, philosophical, emotional, all those things. I think you can understand, you feel this, you make a lot of people laugh. So for me, when I pursued my work, Anytime I wasn't doing something that was even associated with storytelling, I felt like crap. I felt like, man, I didn't want to work at the church. I didn't want to do the PowerPoint stuff. So I've tried to shift my career in a way that puts me in the same world where I'm telling stories, I'm doing podcasts, I'm having conversations with people like you and Matt, Leah. I like the volunteer users post here, actually, because it's. I know it's on the show notes and maybe we can add it, but basically, I think seven days ago, there's a really insightful post by a manager posting the career pivot bowl. It seemed like a bit of a meme, but I'm going to just illustrate the graphic in words and hopefully it's clear. You basically kind of have two circles, a Venn diagram, things I like to do, things I'm good at. And there's obviously an overlap between those two circles. And ideally, like you want to do something that you're both good at and you like to do. But then he has a separate or she has a separate circle that she drew outside of these two overlapping circles of things that make money. It's kind of an absurd situation where in this case, the individual manager is saying, I'm doing everything other than the things that make money, I think it's worthwhile because you do want to overlap between the things you like to do that you're good at and that make money. You're more likely to excel in a professional kind of version of yourself or at this game if you fit all three conditions. Things I like to do, things I'm good at, things that make money, you find the overlap there, bam, right? I do believe it's possible to meet all those three conditions. And in as far as you do, then yeah, you're making money and it's something that you like to do and that you're good at. You're more likely to be content in life, you know, if you can find those three things. Ikigai framing. Oh, I think you mentioned this. 
finding the center of actually four circles, right? Finding the intersection of what you love, what the world needs, what you're good at, and what you can get paid for. Ah, nice. And where what you love and what you're good at intersect is your passion. What you love and what the world needs is your mission. What the world needs and what you can get paid for is your vocation. And what you're good at and what you can get paid for is your profession. And the center of those four is finding your ikigai, which evidently is a Japanese term. But I thought that was a really cool framing. I'm not a hater. I mean, look, obviously there's people finding deeply meaningful work in life. And, you know, to, the, to your question, Aaron, you're an artist. Like you're doing this work really from a place of love and an artistic kind of imperative. And the same rule applies, I think, to being a storyteller and what you're doing now as applies to, let's say, a musician or a screenwriter. People ask me all the time, I want to do comedy. I'm thinking about doing stand-up. I want to try it, blah, blah, blah. Should I do comedy? And my answer is always the same. You should not do comedy unless you cannot not do comedy. Mm -hmm. Like the only people who should be making art in the world are people who cannot not do that. If you could go be a tax lawyer, please be a tax lawyer. It's an affliction, almost. Like a compulsion, you have to do it. Yeah, like you should, you should, feel, you should feel compelled. Yeah, you should feel, there should be a compulsion. Otherwise, what are you doing? Like if, you, if you're trying to decide between, oh, should I be a rapper or should I go sell insurance? Like, go sell insurance, please. The world does not need more shitty rappers, you know? Like, so <laughs> I think you should feel compelled to do creative work that's just one man's opinion. I feel bad for a guy who, like, whose life is, he finds it meaningful that he's getting an award at work and he's getting applauded and he feels like, oh, I, I suffer from imposter syndrome and the fact that my job is giving me an applause is like, makes me feel happy. It's like, you know, I'm happy that you're happy, but I do think you are living a kind of a shallow life. For me, I like making jokes. I liked being creative. I started out as an art major, but I wasn't. I wasn't good enough at it. Like it wasn't going to be my career. And I was, nobody was going to support me after I graduated. So I was like, oh, I enjoy marketing. It's relatively creative, but I'm not good enough at making ads. Part of the TikTok thing is going out into the world, making jokes to no one, being kind of creative, what the world needs in the icky guy. No one is out here be like, when is the next banner ad dropping? I really need to see this website revamp. That's not how the world works. Think having this expectation that you're going to be completely fulfilled for your whole life and your job, that's what's weighing on people. Not everybody can have that, unfortunately. Like, it's great that some people can, but I think, I'm not saying you should hate your clients and not care about them, but like, I think it's totally fair for people to have an expectation that like, Matt started a company, but maybe the junior manager's don't care as fervently about the company as he does. They're still probably doing a great job, but like, I don't know. I think there's there's levels and it's okay to try to find some fulfillment outside of work. I'm not saying you were saying that it isn't from the flip side. Matt, as an entrepreneur, like you have that experience and an operator, point blank, you starting things and building things, is that part of that central part of the, the icky guy? Is, did that come from a heart place? Yeah, well, so first off, I, I would say like, 
there's tons of lists on like, you know, what you need to have from a skills or soft skills or hard skills perspective to be a successful or semi-successful entrepreneur. For me, it's always been the soft skill side, honestly. It's like, aside from the obvious one, persistence, whatnot, you need to be, have an incredible amount of self-awareness. And the reason why I say self-awareness is because back to this, this framework that Azhar introduced, in my case, there was a lot of self-awareness that led me to the ventures that I ended up launching where I was like, self-aware and honest with myself, what am I good at, right? Am I going to launch a startup about deploying rockets into space with my background? And no, right? And so I think that self-awareness does naturally lead you to those areas where you you are more likely to excel. And I was always listening to that very carefully and comparing myself, frankly, with others in certain spaces and understanding like, what area did I excel in beyond that? And sometimes it was creative, sometimes it was more technical thing. I think that's just kind of answer your question one way I've, I've naturally looked at this. But I did want to get back to kind of this Azhar's point. And the reason why it is important to me is anytime you're starting a business, a venture, you have to have hope, right? And that hope is bound in others. If you're launching a religion, you have to have followers. If you're launching a company or if you're launching a, a nonprofit, you're going to be collaborating with people. You're going to be asking people to give time and effort in something that necessarily immediately makes sense for them. You're asking them to trust. I believe that you need to have people who have the ability to trust you and sometimes trust in a in a future they can't see right off the bat. If they're purely approaching stuff from a transactional dollars and cents standpoint, that's necessarily not going to work. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a startup, you're not mentioning, hey, look, here are the stock options. This is our valuation on paper right now. If we hit these targets, this will be the valuation. This is the implication to your own stock options down the line. This doesn't mean you're not leading with salary or RSUs. It does mean it's not enough, right? The biggest most successful companies, for-profit, non-profit, probably prove that. There, there's some underlying thread there that ties the employees together, that ties the founder and the vision they have with the people who ultimately are, are allowing him to build something that otherwise they just would not fundamentally be able to do alone. And finally, I know long-winded here, I think we talked about John Adams' quote previous, a very popular quote, but it was around the idea of our grandfathers were soldiers, so our fathers could be farmers, so we could be artists. And so to Azhar's point, there's nothing wrong with choosing a career as a rapper. But like, there is something bigger than all of us, right? Certainly, if you can add value to humanity, and you have the luxury of choice, and I know I, I realized to a certain portion of the listener base, we probably sound tone deaf, like, well, yeah, you got the luxury of choice, you can choose and totally understand that. And many people can't choose. But in as far as you can choose, and you do have the luxury of choice, and you still choose to be a rapper, I agree with us on that point. There's other areas that humanity is in dire need of that can benefit from your from your efforts. I remember an acting teacher that recently passed away. Her name was Olympia Dukakis. She played in the movie Moonstruck with Cher. And she uh, was my teacher for about a year when I was studying in New York. And she was a badass. And I remember went into her class and I went up to her and I was like, you know what? This is this lady won an Oscar. Okay. Like, and I'm like 23 in New York. I'm trying to be Marlon Brando. I, I'm from the Midwest. I have no idea. And I was like, why aren't I working in this town? I can't get any gigs on, on law and order. What's going on with this world? I was basically asking advice, but kind of being arrogant in the process. And she sat me down and she was like, listen, you're a nice guy. You got a lot of charm, but one, there's a lot of dues that need to be paid. And you have to make a choice. Do you want to be an artist or an entertainer? And I said, I want to be an artist. I got all these stories. She goes, okay, then shut up about your career. Shut your mouth about your career and go to where artists are needed. I'm back in Cleveland now in Ohio. And 
to me, that was one of the reasons why we came back. I think it does speak to a larger thing that you're pointing to, Matt. And even Asar, I know that you're asked what you talk about. You talk about live a real life. Well, I wanted to add to what she said to you because I'm glad that uh, Matt reminded us all of the great privilege that we enjoy and the place of privilege that we're speaking from. But, you know, I, I have assimilated so many of these ideas along the way, including from tremendous mentors I've had. I've been very, very lucky to, you know, have a relationship with, with Dave Chappelle for going on, you know, I met him in 2005. So 17 years, I've benefited from this man's wisdom and company and mentorship. And he would say that, you know, he's, he's publicly made this almost the same comment, Aaron, where he said, uh, when art meets commerce is where it becomes entertainment. And so this idea of like, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be an entertainer? Entertainment is the professional kind of outcome of monetizing your art, commercial art. And the moment you mix art with money, with commerce, is when all kinds of complications and all kinds of tensions, you know, arise. And I remember one time I was on the fence about taking this one gig and I asked Dave, Dave, do you think I should do this thing? And I explained the whole the whole situation. And he was like, listen, man, you got four kids. And I was like, yeah. And he said, don't forget, there's a big difference between making art and making a living. <laughs> like we've all taken the gigs that we just have to take for the check. You know, it's part of life. We got to pay the bills. You got to keep the lights on. You got to feed your kids. So don't get, don't get it twisted. That doesn't make any less than less of an artist. It's really about being real with yourself about your own motives and about your own decisions and about how you navigate monetizing and commercializing your own creativity. And that's a never-ending conundrum. And, and it's funny because there's a lot of overlap. Matt and I talk about this between, you know, startup entrepreneurs, startups, and comedians, you know, stand-ups. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of taking raw ideation and just raw creative power, creative energy, and then transforming that raw energy into a product and then monetizing that product, generating money. And so I think that that's a big part of what makes entrepreneurship and also the pursuit of an artistic career so fun. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app and when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 